Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. In today's discussion, continuing with our consideration of criminal procedure, we're going to be looking at superior court appeals and cases stated. So that is appeals against decisions of the county court and single judges of the Supreme Court, both of which proceed to the Court of Appeal of the Supreme Court of Victoria. And we'll finish up by discussing bail applications, which are a little bit detailed. And in my suggestion, you need to be quite strategic about how to tackle the application. So once we've had a chance to look at the relevant law, which are the provisions of the Bail Act, then we'll turn to putting it all together and how to to answer the elements of a good bail question and indeed how you might run such a thing in real life. So to start with, we look at the Criminal Procedure Act for appeals and cases stated. And there's a some points of similarity with appeals from magistrates' court decisions as we've um, discussed in the last discussion, and some points are quite new. Now, to start with, the relevant part of the Criminal Procedure Act is Part 6.3. So these are appeals and cases stated from the County Court or the Trial Division of the Supreme Court to the Court of Appeal. So point one is time limits and point two, a related point is, unlike what we've looked at from magistrate's court appeals to the county court, there's not an automatic entitlement to an appeal in the case of an accused. An accused must apply for leave to appeal as well as appealing against a decision. Next is time limits, as we'll discuss. The application for leave to appeal and accompanying basis setting out why it's considered that leave to appeal is justified must be filed generally within 28 days after the day of sentence. So there we see a similarity with the Magistrates Court, though the Court of Appeal does have the capacity to extend time, which we'll get to in a bit. So the entitlement to seek leave to appeal against conviction applies to both offences in the trial division of the Supreme Court or the county court. So conviction assumes that a person has been found guilty and the appeal is brought against some alleged error of law that's supposed to have been made by the trial judge. So here's another uh, important distinction between magistrate's court and superior court appeals. You might remember that magistrate's courts are de novo appeals and the court on appeal hears the matter afresh without any uh, preconceived idea as to outcome. When it comes to superior court appeals, they are not de novo. Instead, error of law must be demonstrated. So on that basis, there needs to be some particularity about how it's said that the learned trial judge made a mistake. Um, Likewise, as we'll discuss in relation to appeals against sentence, error of law must be demonstrated. Now, next, by way of introduction, slide three, the powers of the Court of Appeal are to allow the appeal, indeed they're obliged to allow the appeal, if the appellant satisfies the court that and here we're relating to um, relating the discussion to conviction appeals. Firstly, the verdict of the jury is unreasonable or cannot be supported having regard to the evidence. Now, it's not exactly the same test, but for those who come from a civil background, that is the equivalent, you might think, to Wensbury unreasonableness. 
So in other words, it is essentially being submitted under that head of appeal, but no reasonable jury could have come to the factual finding that they did. So either no evidence has been led, which really should have led to a no case, or the evidence is not credible or reliable, or for some other reason, the verdict of the jury cannot be sustained. Here, see your assigned case of Pell in the High Court. Now, that ground looks like it's an error of fact. So it's suggested that the jury didn't accept the advocacy of the um, accused at first instance. Therefore, the Court of Appeal should overturn the appeal. But it's not quite that. It is to the extent that the jury's verdict is misconceived, which is considered to be an error of law, even though it gives the appearance of being an error of fact. So it has to be, as we'll discuss, something more simply than the idea that the jury shouldn't have come to its conclusion. It really comes down to a test that the jury could not have come to its conclusion. Now, the second sub-bullet point on slide three, and we'll talk through the law in due course, relates to error of law. So as a result of an error or irregularity in or in relation to the trial, there's been a substantial miscarriage of justice. Note here, please, and this is under Section 276 of the Criminal Procedure Act, Error of law, while necessary, is not enough. So even if there has been an error of law, such as the trial judge shouldn't have admitted evidence, should have excluded evidence or improperly excluded evidence, that of itself is not going to be enough or misdirected the jury is the other main one. So um, misled the jury in relation to the error of, in relation to the elements of law or the application of law to facts. A simple error is not going to be enough. Further and separately, it needs to be demonstrated as a result of that error of law that there's been a substantial miscarriage of justice in the circumstances of the case. And thirdly, for any other reason, there's been a substantial miscarriage of justice. So Section 276 of the Criminal Procedure Act, really you're looking at a circumstance in which um, for an accused to be successful, either the verdict of the jury must be unreasonable or can't be supported having regard to the evidence, or it can be shown that the learned trial judge made an error of law and as a result that led to a substantial miscarriage of justice looking at the facts of the case. So in all other cases, the appeal must be dismissed by the Court of Appeal and that becomes a final order. So see slide four in relation to unreasonableness and here I commend to you the Pell decision which you need to read carefully and closely. The court on appeal undertakes a separate independent evaluation of the evidence to decide whether the jury must have entertained a doubt about the appellant's guilt. That's the test of a verdict being unreasonable or cannot be supported having regard to the evidence. It's a high standard and it doesn't often succeed, but in order to succeed, as mentioned, the court independently evaluates the evidence and if and only if the court satisfied that the jury must have entertained a doubt about the appellant's guilt, will that ground of appeal be successful? If at its highest, the argument amounts to an argument that the jury might have entertained a doubt about the appellant's guilt, then that is not going to be enough. Now, you might think that that would be a, an appropriate ground if in the facts of your problem, you had um, a, a, an indictment containing more than one charge. The jury found the accused not guilty in relation to one or more charges, but found the accused guilty in relation to another charge. Now there, that might invite you to start thinking, well, how is the matrix of evidence different in relation to the conviction versus the acquittal? 
Now, if there are different paths of reasoning reasonably open to a jury and they followed the path that was reasonably open to them urged by the prosecution, that's different to there being an unreasonable verdict. Now, moving on to um, error of law amounting to substantial miscarriage of justice. In this circumstance, we need to establish on the part of the appellant that the learned trial judge, as mentioned, either in a legal ruling, pre-trial, during trial, or in the context of his or her honours charge to the jury at the end of the trial, made an error of law. And then secondly, you need to look at the circumstances of the particular case and persuade the Court of Appeal that had the proper direction been given or the proper ruling been made, that the course of the trial would have followed another path. So that's where you need to engage the second part of the test that it led to a substantial miscarriage of justice. It's not enough simply to say, look, the learned trial judge directed the jury as to A, B and C when it should have been A or B or C. The next question is, well, how does it make a difference to the conduct of the trial or the verdict that ought to have been passed? So there's two stages there. Moving on to slide five, orders on successful appeal. Here, it depends on the ground that is argued. So the Court of Appeal does have broad powers, so it can allow the appeal and order a new trial for the offence charged or some other offence. It could enter a judgment of acquittal for the offence charged or it could enter a judgment of conviction of some other offence that the jury must have been satisfied that the accused committed. And of course, there's a finding of not guilty by reason of mental impairment, which we'll leave to one side for the purpose of the next discussion. Now, you might think that if an appellant is successful in arguing that there's been an error of law and successful in arguing that that resulted in a substantial miscarriage of justice, then the next question is what remedy ought follow? The submission might usually be made that that should result in a new trial. So that's point one. Point two is if there's been an error of law and a substantial miscarriage of justice results, then it could be the case that a judgment of acquittal could, uh, should be entered. But that tends to be a less uh, frequently applied um, verdict of the Court of Appeal or order of the Court of Appeal. Likewise, in relation to substitution, for instance, for a lesser offence than the one charged. So it depends on the circumstances of the case, but the last part of your synthesis is considering exactly which order is sought. If the learned trial judge has misdirected the jury, then you might be submitting that a new trial ought be had so that the issue properly can be determined by a jury under proper direction. Now, that is a different outcome if you're submitting that the verdicts of the jury are unsafe or cannot be supported, unreasonable, and can't be supported having regard to the evidence. So please see the High Court case of Pell. If this argument is successful, then the conclusion may well be that a judgment of acquittal for the offence charged ought be entered. So think carefully about how this would work in practice, but it tends to follow more naturally that if you manage to persuade a court of appeal that the verdicts are unreasonable or unsafe, then it tends to follow that therefore a judgment of acquittal or a judgment of conviction for a lesser offence should follow. It's less frequent and, in fact, it is difficult for me to consider a case in which there's been a successful argument of unsafe or unsatisfactory and the Court of Appeal has accepted that argument and then remitted the matter for retrial. So that leaves to one, it leaves to its conclusion, appeals by an accused. 
So please note the necessity of seeking leave to appeal um, against conviction, followed by the, the application for the appeal itself. The number of bases on which the appeal may be brought, consider whether it's an unsafe um, argument or whether it's specific error. If it is specific error, then you add the fact that it caused a substantial miscarriage of justice. In a fact pattern in a bar exam, please consider exactly what the error is, but then you need to go on and consider, well, why that might have caused a substantial miscarriage of justice. And lastly, while mustering the powers available to the Court of Appeal, you then need to think strategically, well, what actually are you asking for? If it's error of law, that it might be allowing the appeal and remitting the matter for retrial or substituting a verdict, possibly for a lesser offence. If it's unsafe or unreasonable, then the order that you're seeking might indeed be a verdict of acquittal. Now, in relation to appeals against sentence, um, just as with appeals against conviction from superior courts, and you'll see the uh, statutory provisions of the Criminal Procedure Act referred to at slide six, there is also a two-stage process, though it can be compressed into a single hearing. That is leave to appeal against sentence and the appeal against sentence. So that's a point of similarity with conviction appeals. There's no automatic right for an accused to appeal against sentence. Leave must be sought. And secondly, there needs to be that uh, consideration of the same test, which is there needs to be established error of law. And lastly, you need to consider what order you are seeking. So section 279 and 284 of the Criminal Procedure Act, see slide six. The method is to apply for leave to appeal by filing notice of application for leave to appeal in a written case within 28 days of the date of sentence. Here I'll interpolate a point um, back from appeals against conviction. Um, the time limit in relation to an appeal against conviction is 28 days from the date of sentence not the date of alleged error of the trial judge. So for instance, there could be a pre-trial ruling that occurs on the 1st of January, but the accused is not sentenced until the 1st of April. Time starts running on the 1st of April, even if you're arguing an appeal against conviction. Returning to slide six, usually the Court of Appeal is constituted by a single judge in relation to leave applications. And then if the uh, leave application is successful, then the matter is booked before a fuller bench. Now, just as with convictions, it's not enough to suggest that the, the learned sentencing judge uh, did not accede to these submissions and therefore got it wrong. Sentencing is a discretionary process, but it's assumed that in the exercise of discretion that the uh, Superior Court judge didn't make any mistakes. So there needs to be demonstrated error in the sentencing process. One example of demonstrating that error of law is that the, the sentence is manifestly excessive. A little bit of Wensbury-ness here, Wensbury unreasonableness here. In other words, it's submitted in a case of manifest excess that no reasonable judge could have come to the conclusion in the number that the judge did. So the first example of error of law is manifest excess. Once we come to appeals by the prosecution, its um, reverse is manifest inadequacy in the case of a Crown appeal. So leading to one side manifest excess, the other errors of law that may be demonstrated are suggestions that the learned sentencing judge misapplied either the relevant legislation or the common law demonstrating some error. 
And just as with conviction appeals, it's not enough simply to suggest that there has been an error of law. Um, the last point at slide six, the court must then consider whether it would have imposed a different sentence. And the court can only allow the appeal if it's satisfied that the original sentence was not only affected by error, but it also believes that a different sentence should be imposed, section 281285. So as I say, just as in the case of conviction, identify the alleged error of law. It could be a simple suggestion of manifest excess in that no reasonable judge could have come to the conclusion that, it, uh, that he or she did, or it could be specific error in suggesting a misapplication of the legislation or the common law. That's not enough. Even if a learned sentencing judge egregiously misapplied the law, the next question is, should a different sentence have been passed? And where an accused is appealing, it's suggested that, of course, that the sentence imposed was too high. So once the uh, Court of Appeal via a single judge is satisfied that leave ought to be granted, and then in the hearing proper, the Court of Appeal considers the substance of the argument, there is that integrated two-stage process, not only error of law, but also that a different sentence ought to be imposed. And the Court of Appeal then will make its own assessment as to the sentence that ought to be passed, having regard to the circumstances of the offence and the circumstances of the offender. So once the Court of Appeal allows an appeal against sentence, the ordinary course is for a new sentence to be substituted rather than the matter then being remitted for re-sentence, though the court can do that as well. Now, when it comes to sentencing, we'll talk about the different principles of sentencing that apply. We've still got one more discussion, which is the Jury Directions Act, before we turn to sentencing law. But see slide seven, which foreshadows some of those um, arguments which can be made. So it could be parity, which is comparison of different sentences imposed on co-accused. It could be individual sentences. It could be the order for accumulation um, based on the totality principle of sentencing. There could be an appeal against the non-parole period, which is the minimum to serve um, out of a larger head sentence. If, see bullet point three at slide seven, so where there is an appeal against multiple sentences imposed on an indictment, the sentencing discretion for any other offences may be reopened even if there's only a successful appeal in relation to one of those charges. And just to um, finish that discussion with a, a last point that often is asked in practice, the Court of Appeal takes into account circumstances as at the date of the appeal rather than as at the date of the original sentence if the appeal is successful. So if there's going to be resentencing at that stage at the conclusion of a successful appeal, then best practice is of course that counsel has up-to-date instructions in relation to their client's personal circumstances and so forth. Now slide eight, going back to the uh, grant of leave to appeal, the test is then specified in sections 281 and 285. So the appellant must satisfy the court that there's an error in the sentence first imposed and a different sentence should be imposed. So they're, they're the two integrated stages. Note, lastly, that the Court of Appeal can actually increase the sentence on an appeal by an offender if there's error in relation to one sentence and a different sentence should be imposed, but there is a procedural precondition to give the appellant a warning that they face the risk of an increased sentence. 
at that point you might think that counsel would be able to speak quietly to their client to obtain instructions to withdraw the appeal. And remedies and orders made, slide nine. So that recaps what I was discussing about orders made following a successful appeal. Set aside the sentence imposed and either impose the sentence it considers appropriate or remit the matter to the originating court. Now, moving on to slide 10 and appeals to the Court of Appeal against sentence of imprisonment. Note here that we're dealing with the last residual entitlement to appeal where a person has appealed from the magistrate's court to the county or Supreme Court and there a sentence of imprisonment has been substituted on appeal. So slide 10 would be a most obscure point of law if it to be examined. Whilst you can infer that there's going to be a question that relates to some aspect of appeal, uh, whether it's either an appeal from the magistrate's court to the county court, an appeal from a superior court to a court of appeal, it could be a case stated, it could be an interlocutory appeal, a further appeal does not tend to be assessed. Now, slide 11 relates to the Crown right of appeal against sentence. And here we pause and in Victoria, the double jeopardy principle is such that the Crown does not have a right to appeal against acquittal. So let's focus our attention on Crown appeals against sentence. The first point to note is this, and that is that where the prosecutor complains that a sentence imposed by a superior court is inadequate, they don't need to seek leave to appeal, unlike the accused. So point one, slide 11, section 287, the test is this. Now, and it's not a bifurcated test in terms of leave to appeal followed by an appeal. The DPP may appeal as of right against a sentence imposed either in the trial division of the Supreme Court or the trial division of the county court. If the DPP considers that there is an error in the sentence imposed and a different sentence should be imposed and it's satisfied that an appeal should be brought in the public interest. So there are two points. Firstly, it needs to be contended that there is error of law, but just as in the case of appeals against sentence by the accused, one of those particular errors of law might be manifest inadequacy. That is, no reasonable judge could have come to the conclusion that the learned sentencing judge did. It was an entirely inadequate sentence in all of the circumstances or some specific error has been made. And one of those suggests that a different sentence should be imposed, but also the DPP is under an obligation to satisfy herself that an appeal should be brought in the public interest. So please note bullet point two at slide 11. Those circumstances might be activated in circumstances, not only of manifest inadequacy or inconsistency, but where it is necessary for a Court of Criminal Appeal to lay down principles for the governance and guidance of courts having the duty of sentencing convicted persons and so forth. Procedure, slide, uh, sorry, bullet point three of slide 11. Commencement and appeal under 287 requires filing a notice of appeal and written case within 28 days after the date on which sentence was imposed and the DPP must sign the notice of appeal personally. The test under section 289 is whether the Court of Appeal is persuaded, A, that there is an error in the sentence first imposed, that is, it is either too lenient or some other error of law is demonstrated, and B, a different sentence should be imposed. And in any other case, the court must dismiss the appeal. 
Now, note please here, historically, the, in Victoria, the court could take into account the sentencing uh, principle of double jeopardy, such as in the case, for instance, where an accused had been convicted and sentenced to a non-custodial outcome at first instance, and then the DPP appealed against the leniency of that sentence. The Court of Appeal could take into account the fact that the person had been released on a non-custodial disposition at first instance, only for that to be found legally inadequate by a second court, so that the sentence imposed by the Court of Appeal could be mitigated on that basis. Now, no longer so. Sections 289, Section 290 of the Criminal Procedure Act, the court may not take that principle into account. So it is simply the case as to whether it allows the appeal, sets aside the sentence imposed and imposes an appropriate sentence or dismisses the appeal. Now, the next category that we consider are interlocutory appeals, and these are relatively new in Victoria, and the Criminal Procedure Act was the first to give rise to this concept. So in the civil case, this is nothing new, interlocutory decisions. In criminal cases, we now have enough jurisprudence to understand how they work. This is essentially a two-stage process as well. So it relates to any interlocutory decision defined in Section 3 of the Criminal Procedure Act um, made by a judge, whether before or during the trial. So it's not the ultimate issue. It's any legal ruling that takes place either during the course of pre-trial rulings or indeed even in the running. So that's point one. So there needs to be some contended error made by a learned trial judge in an interlocutory stage. And secondly, there is a requirement of certification. So that is, as per slide 13, a party can only seek leave to appeal if the judge who made the interlocutory decision certifies. And this is either if the decision concerns the admissibility of evidence, that the evidence, if ruled inadmissible, would eliminate or substantially weaken the prosecution case, or if the decision does not concern the admissibility of evidence, that the decision is sufficiently important to the trial to justify it being determined on an interlocutory appeal. So an example of a decision concerning the admissibility of evidence, you might think, would be where the accused has argued before trial that their record of police interview should be excluded, either compulsorily or under in the exercise of judicial discretion. The trial judge rules that it's in, and it's suggested, well, it's firstly, it's sufficiently important to the accused case, but secondly, if that's wrong and the evidence ought to have been excluded, it might eliminate or substantially weaken the prosecution case. So that's an example under that first limb. An example under the second limb where the decision does not concern the admissibility of evidence might be a case in which the accused pretrial has sought maybe a permanent stay of the charges, arguing that it would be unfair to continue. And the learned trial judge has disagreed and refused to order a stay. Now, if the learned trial judge has made an error in relation to that decision, then it might be that the court considers that the decisions of sufficient importance to the trial to justify it being reviewed on an interlocutory appeal. If the trial judge has it wrong, then the trial ought be stayed. So under section 2953, then the primary judge who made the decision then needs to certify that there is a live issue for determination under one or the other of those headings. And then 
note please the second bullet point from the bottom the the judge also needs to consider whether their own interlocutory decision is attended by sufficient doubt to warrant an appeal so for instance if the judge who refused the order pre-trial if that's the subject of the order then goes on to consider and my decision's not that attended by doubt that we need to go through this process they may refuse to certify so if the court has certified the decision then the process is activated then there's a decision for the Court of Appeal to make, which is the Court of Appeal can only grant leave to bring an interlocutory appeal if it's satisfied there's in the, it's in the interests of justice to do so. Having regard to the matters outlined at slide 14, which come from section 297 of the Criminal Procedure Act. There is a reluctance to determine matters on interlocutory appeals if the trial is in the running. So see the last bullet point on slide 14. So if an application is brought, for instance, while the jury is considering its verdict, it will be rare that the reasons for granting leave would outweigh the inevitable disruption that would be caused to the trial. And if you think procedurally, um, if there is a jury involved, particularly during the deliberation stage, then they'd need to be sent home while the Court of Appeal considers the interlocutory appeal. Now, if the accused is convicted, it's of course without prejudice to their rights of appeal. So if they are not permitted to undertake the interlocutory appeal process, they have a right of appeal or a right to seek leave to appeal after the verdict is handed down. So it's not as if it's the last opportunity for them to raise that appeal point. So one of the last points arising in this area, slide 15, is that the trial judge may refuse to certify. And at that point, the accused has a decision that they uh, do not appreciate, plus a refusal to certify. The party that requested certification can then apply to the Court of Appeal for a review of the trial judge's refusal to certify, section 295 and 296. And then the Court of Appeal must consider the decision to certify before proceeding to the question of determining leave to appeal and then the interlocutory appeal itself. Slide 16, determination of an interlocutory appeal um, is section 300 of the um, Criminal Procedure Act. So in its powers, the Court of Appeal can affirm or set aside the interlocutory decision. So for instance, it might be um, relating back to the decision not to exclude the accused police interview, then the Court of Appeal could affirm the trial judge's decision not to exclude it, could set aside that decision to exclude it. And if it sets aside the interlocutory decision, it can make any other order that the Court of Appeal considers ought to have been made. So it could, for instance, exclude the police interview or it could remit the matter to the court for determination. And second bullet point from the bottom at slide 16, if it remits, then it may give directions concerning the basis on which the matter is to be determined. And the court that receives the remitter must then hear and determine the matter in accordance with those directions. So then that's the process of interlocutory appeal and the orders that the court may make. Deeply procedural, occasionally assessed. The last procedure available under the Criminal Procedure Act for appeals from superior courts is not an appeal in the strict sense, it's a case stated, slide 17. These don't arise as often in practice. They arise just as often in bar exam questions because they're a fairly unusual procedure also introduced by the Criminal Procedure Act. Now, in relation to cases stated, this actually 
actually allows the court to reserve a question of law. Um, so previously we've talked about appeals by and accused appeals by the Crown. In this case, we have a court under Section 302 and the following provisions reserving a question of law that arises before or during a trial, and this is in the Superior Court, either the County Court or the Supreme Court, or on an appeal from the Magistrates Court, for the Court of Appeals determination. The test for the court's reservation of such a question is if it is satisfied that it's in the interests of justice to do so, having regard to the matters set out at the sub-bullet points of bullet point two on slide 17. Um, the court can exercise this power on the application of a party. It could so do on the judge's own motion. But if the court does reserve a question, slide 17, final bullet point, it must state a case for the Court of Appeal. And it, so it must set out a question of law, set out the circumstances in which the question has arisen in the particular case. The court must sign the case stated and then transmit it to the Court of Appeal. I've mentioned it doesn't arise very often. The circumstances in which it, it may arise may be, for instance, if there are contradictory authorities that relate to a particular point of law, or it could be whether there's a new law um, that requires consideration by the Court of Appeal as to its practical interpretation, or it could be an old law that the Court of Appeal has never turned its attention to as to how it is to be interpreted and administered at that trial level. You might think that there's a bit of an overlap with the trial judge's primary responsibility to interpret and apply the law, uh, which might be one of the reasons why a trial judge might be tempted to make a primary determination and then for the Court of Appeal to intervene if one of the parties suggests that that primary interpretation is wrong. See slide 18 for procedural consequences. For instance, bullet point two, once the case is stated, the Court of Appeal can hear and determine the question of law in the stated case and then remits the question and determination back to the originating court under section 306. Section 302, the trial court may not reserve a question of law once the trial has commenced unless the reasons for doing so outweigh any disruption to the trial and it would necessitate an adjournment. And so the best point in time, you might think, for such a procedure to be activated if it were going to would be before a jury is impanelled, before trial commences. The DPP may refer a question of law slide 19, which is uh, in some ways very similar to a case stated, but the difference with the referral of a question of law, which you can have a look at um, in your own time, is that the case stated is made by the court, whereas the DPP referral of question of law, of course, allows the DPP to seek clarification of a point of law. So see section 308 in particular. We have seen examples of this where the straightforward application of, of a law that does not appear to be in error may lead to an acquittal, for instance. Now, in such a situation, the DPP doesn't have power to appeal against um, an acquittal. So in those circumstances, the DPP might refer the question of law to avoid um, the same process happening uh, in the future to the same end, um, which is argued to be unsatisfactory. So we now turn to a different topic altogether. And having regard to the clock, it might be that I start the discussion of the Bail Act and continue it in the next discussion. 
The slides set out the relevant provisions of the Bail Act, and some of these are simply descriptive. So while it might be a little tedious, I just need to take you through these provisions um, so that we're all on the same page as to what the relevant provisions are and how they work together. In the next point of the discussion, they need to be synthesised. So the reason why we're going through it in such close detail as to identification is to make sure that the synthesis process runs really uh, seamlessly. So as I've mentioned at slide 20, we start with understanding the way that the Bail Act is structured and we end by working out a narrative structure for answering questions relating to bail and bail hearings and, of course, in real life knowing how to run a bail application. So the way that the Bail Act works is by setting out in a reasonably organised but sometimes a little non-linear way the relevant matters that need to be taken into account in a particular bail application. So my suggestion as to where to begin is to start with circumstances where the accused personal circumstances fall into special categories. So where you come to look at the circumstances of an exam problem or in real life, one of the questions you'd ask yourself or your client early on is to start with whether they're a vulnerable adult under 3AAA of the Bail Act. So is the adult client 18 years or more and do they have a cognitive, physical or mental health impairment that causes them to have difficulty in understanding their rights, making a decision or communicating a decision? So that's point one. If in the facts of your exam problem, your virtual client is a vulnerable adult, then that needs to be noted early on. Then point two, and in that same vein, is your uh, client in an exam problem or in real life an Aboriginal person? If so, Section 3A of the Bail Act requires that to be given special consideration as well. And in relation to a child, if you were examined in the children's court procedure, then all sorts of other matters arise. But let's assume it's magistrate's court, county court, supreme court. Then the fact that your client is a child is also of special significance. In all other cases, and even in those cases, Section 3 AAA obliges the bail decision maker to take into account these surrounding circumstances. And they do so, obviously, with careful assistance from counsel as to those circumstances. So the responsibility shifts then to the exam answer or counsel to address all relevant circ uh, surrounding circumstances. 3AAA provides a non-exhaustive list, which is a very long one, as to the types of matters that must be taken into account. Some relate to the alleged offending, slide 22, such as the nature and seriousness of the alleged offending, including whether it's a serious example of the offence, the strength of the prosecution case, the view of the alleged victim of the offending, if the accused were to be granted bail, the amount of bail or conditions of bail, length of time the accused is likely to spend in custody if bail is refused and likely sentence to be imposed if the accused is found guilty of the offence with which the accused is charged. So the way that they are tackled in an application is to note those surrounding circumstances. In real life, as you may know, some of those surrounding circumstances are known and some are unknown. So it might be that the strength of the prosecution case is untested. 
it might be that um, practitioners can give their best estimate as to delay and the amount of time it's going to take before a case is brought on as against the calculus of what sentence they might be sentenced to if they were found guilty for an offence. So counsel's role is to distill those factors as best they can in the circumstances as known at the time of the application. Slide 23, we then move to other surrounding circumstances that must be taken into account relating to the circumstances of the accused. And these include, and then not exhaustive, the accused criminal history, the extent to which they have complied with conditions of any earlier grants of bail, at the time of the alleged offending, whether they were on bail for another offence, on, on summons, on parole, or on a community corrections order, and whether there's a family violence intervention order. And also the accused personal circumstances. So here we bring in the elements that I've talked to um, from the outset, 3AAA and 3A and 3B. So their personal circumstances, their vulnerability, associations, home environment and background their health, whether they're well, whether they're in ill health, whether they have a cognitive impairment, an intellectual disability or a mental illness, and the availability of treatment or bail support services. Now, I'll discuss the relevant tests under the Bail Act, and then we'll break before the next discussion, because this is very detailed and reasonably gritty. Please refer to Section 3D of the Bail Act, and the key features of the decision-making process. We are faced with a series of tests. We start with a prima facie entitlement to bail under Section 4, unless another test applies. So, so far, so good. Next is looking to the offence with which the accused is charged. There may be either a test of exceptional circumstances or compelling reasons which I'll discuss in a moment. And those tests are to be satisfied by the accused. So if, for instance, the offence with which the accused is charged or the circumstances in which that offence is, is charged lead to a conclusion that the, there's an exceptional circumstances test or a compelling reasons test, the accused must show the bail decision maker of either those exceptional circumstances or compelling reasons. So as I and then the next stage of the test is that the prosecution may separately allege that the accused represents an unacceptable risk. So there are the three characterisations of test. One is a prima facie entitlement to bail. Two is the possibility of exceptional circumstances or compelling reasons to be shown by the accused. And the third is the prosecution may suggest that there is an unacceptable risk. And I'll talk about the risks in a moment. In real life, we also see a combination of the second and the third. So it could be exceptional circumstances and unacceptable risk or compelling reasons and unacceptable risk. It could be a prima facie entitlement to bail and an unacceptable risk. So the prosecution, including on the instructions of the police, may suggest that there's something about the offence, there's something about the accused personal circumstances that poses risks that aren't acceptable to the, that shouldn't be acceptable to the bail decision maker in the circumstances. Right, so let's identify these tests before we break. Firstly, exceptional circumstances. This is governed by 4AA of the Bail Act. 
The first circumstance which will amount to exceptional circumstances is if the accused is charged with a Schedule 1 offence, that is Schedule 1 of the Bail Act, and that includes very serious offences like murder, like aggravated home invasion or aggravated carjacking, trafficking or cultivation in a large commercial quantity or commercial quantity. That's not an exhaustive example, but we're talking about serious crimes. 4AA2 indicates that the exceptional circumstances test will also apply where the accused is said to have committed a Schedule 2 offence, either where the person has a terrorism record or there is a risk, or the offence is alleged to have been committed while the accused is on bail or summons or awaiting trial for a Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 offence, or during a sentence parole order or community corrections order for a Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 offence. So 4AA2 will extend the exceptional circumstances test where there's some combination of a Schedule 2 offence and one of those in the accused personal circumstances. So 4AA, either a Schedule 1 offence or a Schedule 2 offence in one of those alleged circumstances. The test outlined and illustrated by Reed Glury Hyde, I'll return to, and Ray CT, the start of the next discussion. Moving to slide 29 for a moment. Examples where the compelling reasons test will apply for AA3 are allegations of Schedule 2 offences. So look to Schedule 2 and you'll see where the compelling reasons test applies instead of the exceptional circumstances test, such as an indictable offence alleged to have been committed while the accused is on bail or summons or awaiting trial for another indictable offence or during a CCO or parole order or manslaughter or another serious homicide falling short of murder or it could be intentionally causing serious injury, or it could be recklessly causing serious injury in circumstances of gross violence, or rape, sexual penetration of a child, and other serious sexual offences. So the compelling reasons test relates to Schedule 2 offences. And lastly, the unacceptable risk test, see Section 4D of the Bail Act. So this is further and separately to the exceptional circumstances or compelling reasons test. The prosecutor bears the onus if it is argued that there is an unacceptable risk of demonstrating that there's an unacceptable risk having regard to the surrounding circumstances. This is slide 32, 4D of the Bail Act and the extent to which any risk may be mitigated by suitable conditions of bail. So though we are mid-topic, um, we're going to take a break at this stage. We've managed to finish all of the relevant appeals and variants, and we've introduced the Bail Act, that is the uh, relevant uh, vulnerable applicant provisions surrounding circumstances and the test which may apply in the circumstances of the particular case. At the start of the next discussion, We'll go back into the details of each of those Bail Act tests and finish up by summarising how a bail application is made in the circumstances of a particular case and we'll then turn our attention to the accessible provisions of the Jury Directions Act. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.